All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll enter in First Peter this evening. Lord, we are individuals that uh, realize that uh, as we look around us that this world is not our final stop, and we're thankful for it. Uh, but uh, we have to live here now, and so as we look at this book this evening, may we uh, recognize uh, the responsibilities we have and some of the difficulties we may face and that we need to be prepared for, uh, that uh, knowing one day we will stand before you. And so uh, may we be wise uh, in our uh, understanding and live out uh, what it is to be a pilgrim in this life. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter, you find very clearly stated, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. We start this letter off, and you have very clearly who wrote the letter, and it is no surprise seeing it's named after him, and he is the very first word in it, and it is Peter. Uh, Peter goes by multiple different names in our scripture. Uh, you get into 1 Corinthians, sometimes he's known as Cephas. Okay, these people are cheering that they are of Cephas. You know, some are Apollos, some are Paul, and some are of Cephas. Uh, they, they're claiming they like Peter. Um, you also have him sometimes being called Simon in the Gospels, but uh, he is, uh, Simon has kind of the idea of, you know, small, insignificant, whereas Peter has the idea of a rock, even though it's an insignificant rock, uh, it's of more importance. But uh, Peter is the one who wrote this, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a man who is the apostle to the Jews. Um, Here's, right at the beginning, gives us a section, and uh, today on a feed somewhere, someone obviously was pulling up pictures. In fact, it was at BiblePlaces.com I told you about uh, a week or two ago uh, on a Sunday night that is a great place for pictures, and they were pulling up pictures from this region. Uh, this region of the world is what you would call modern-day Turkey. Okay, It's Asia Minor. It's the northern side. Uh, it's more north than it is south. It's more uh, towards the coast of where the Black Sea is at, uh, that region, Ankara, which is uh, the capital, uh, this whole area all the way up to the coast that he's writing to. And so it's kind of an unusual region because it's not one that we have in the book of Acts people going to. In fact, Paul in Acts 16 is said to go to Bithynia, this region, and the Lord said, no, you're not going. And he wanted to go to Ephesus, and he wouldn't go there, and finally ends up on the end of Asia Minor, and that's when he has this vision of Macedonia. We really don't have any accounts of anybody going there. Um, we know that uh, people from this region were in Acts 2 there at the day of Pentecost. Um, they heard the gospel, they got saved. Um, but there seems to be, with the amount of what the 
apostle Peter is addressing here, he may have very well been in this region. We, we don't really have a good tracking of where Peter was at other than the fact of he's in Jerusalem periodically. Um, where he's at, he eventually ends up in Rome where he's executed. Um, but yeah, we don't know. So he may very well have visited this region at one time or another. Uh, but uh, this is what it is. And, and we're going to get to this term strangers here in a second. Um, this is a term that's sometimes used to describe Jews problem is, as you go through this letter, he's not merely addressing Jews. He's talking about indi- to individuals in some cases that he says, you turn from idols. Well, the Jews didn't have a problem with idolatry typically uh, after they went into exile. That wasn't their problem. Uh, typically, it's a problem with Gentiles, and that was a way of referring to it. So he could just in general be using this term strangers or pilgrims uh, that are in this region uh, addressing Christians that are there. Now, time and place written, okay, it seems to be written close to the time of persecutions by the Roman government. It doesn't seem like it's happened completely yet, okay, AD 64 is when Nero starts uh, executing Christians as a uh, federal offense, basically, uh, for being a Christian across the empire. Um, It not yet happened yet, but Peter was preparing the readers for this time. Uh, so it probably this letter is somewhere between 63 and 65 A.D. It's their, their guess. It's, it seems to be close to the time where uh, Christians are really going to have some severe tests, and Peter is just kind of prepping them for that. Place written. You get to the very end of 1 Peter, and 1 Peter 5 and verse 13 says, uh, verse 12 says this, about Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting, testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Uh, that word Silvanus, uh, that, that's a name for Silas. So the guy who was beaten up with Paul in Philippi, he's somehow connected at this point with Peter. He's writing the letter for Peter. Uh, and then verse 13, the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you as does Marcus, my son. You're going, okay, that's Marcus, that's John Mark. Okay, that's the one who wrote our gospel of Mark. As most of we went through that book, we said probably Mark is writing down the stories of Peter in that gospel. Some of them are personal that he has, but most of these sound like uh, something that Peter would write or say. Uh, and the doing of this. But it says in verse 13 that he's writing from Babylon. There's three possibilities. One of them I completely discount, and that would be a very small town in North Africa. Um, But it could be either one. It's referring to the literal Babylon on the Euphrates River that has been throughout ancient history to this point. It could actually be that. It could also be the city of Rome. Um, You say, I I don't know about that. Well, when you get to the book of Revelation and you have religious and uh, governmental Babylon, it's talked about being on a city of seven hills. Seven hills, that's what the city of Rome was known for along the the, um, Tiber River there, and uh, it was uh, known by that uh, distinction that it was set on seven hills. That's how they described this uh, city on a regular basis. Some people have a hard time with thinking that because John wrote 
95, more than likely, probably 30 years after this, were Christians already calling Rome Babylon at this point? Don't know. So either place could be a possibility of where he's writing from. We you know, can't be definitive and dogmatic because there's nothing uh, that we have to prove either way. Now, themes in this letter. Okay, the one that you've already caught that the Apostle Peter is going to emphasize is this idea of being strangers and pilgrims. Now, the problem is, is in our Bible, uh, the way they translated it, it's confusing. You read in verse 1, it says, uh, talking to these ones who are uh, strangers, okay, you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, and that passage says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Your problem is, is that the word strangers in that verse is not the word strangers in verse 1. Why do they do this to us? I don't know why. Um, it's the word pilgrims. So you have the same Greek word that's translated strangers in chapter 1, pilgrims in chapter 2. Uh, you've got an actual different word for strangers uh, there in verse 11. And you say, well, what's he, what's he doing here? Well, the one where he introduces it uh, there in verse 1 and verse uh, 11 is just talking about a person who lives in a foreign place. I mean, that's really the emphasis. You're, you're not living in a place that's really familiar to you, you're comfortable with, and, and that kind of idea that you're in a culture that's not like yours. That's the emphasis of that word. In 2.11, that word strangers is a word that describes one who is living in a region that they don't have rights there because they have, well, a citizenship someplace else. The emphasis is on your rights as a citizen, you're not a citizen there because you're a citizen someplace else. And the emphasis for the believers here is to help them to understand that many of them in this region had taken up this region. They're living there. Uh, some of them would have been Jews, so it's not their native land uh, in some ways. And so uh, they're kind of got this idea of being strangers and pilgrims. But he takes this whole idea and says, that's what you are as a Christian. You know, you got that little song, the ditty that's sometimes uh, singing, uh, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Okay, this is not a permanent stopping place, and nor should we feel completely comfortable here with the culture and the things that they're doing. And so the apostle Peter, right here from the beginning, goes to these people and says, understand this is not your place. This is not your permanent residency. Uh, you are going somewhere. Uh, it's the same idea that you have in Hebrews chapter 11 where you have the patriarchs there, uh, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons uh, of Jacob. They recognize the fact that they're strangers and pilgrims. They're looking for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Okay, they're, they're not, I mean, they're here living in this life, but they know this is not the final place that they set up. This is why Abraham's okay to live in a tent. Because he realizes this is not the permanent location for me. There's something that God has for me that's more permanent. Okay, their home was not here in this life, but they were citizens heading towards heaven. 
The second name that is used in this book, which is kind of unique, is one that is not initially used for believers, but became a name for them. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, in the city of Antioch, uh, there along the coast uh, in the region of Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon today, uh, this church gets established, and it's on fire. These people keep talking about Christ, keep talking about Christ, keep talking about Christ, and eventually they became known as Christians. Before that point, they were known as disciples or people of the way. That's how they were identified. It seems like this term is now well enough used that the Apostle Peter is able to call them uh, in chapter 4 and verse number 16 as he's challenging them about suffering. Uh, he, I'm back in James here. That's not going to help me any. First uh, Peter 4, 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. I mean, he uses this to say, okay, you're Christians, you're Christ ones, uh, but because of that, you're going to suffer. Because Christ suffered. This is not your place. You know, you're not, this is not your place to be at. And in talking about, you know, we even brought it up today, John Bunyan, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a point in the story where the Pilgrim and his companion end up going through a city known as Vanity Fair. And it's got everything. It's got stuff from every region of the world, everything that you could ever possibly think of, and that type of thing. And yet, in the midst of this, what happens to them? Because they will not have a part in that. One of them ends up being executed. Pilgrim continues on his journey, but faithful uh, is executed there. Uh, And it's just this understanding of a pilgrim mindset. This is not your world that you're living in. And understand, people are going to see you as Christ followers, and you're someone who's an irritation to them. You'll suffer persecution while you're in this life. Your rights will be, we might say in our uh, mindset in modern-day Western culture, our rights are being violated. Well, the rights that they have, they don't have because they don't live as a citizen of this world. Second theme in this book is suffering. Okay, that is a major theme in here. 16 times as you go through the book, you'll see this word suffering uh, going along with persecution. um, And you go through and you go, what's the suffering that they're going through? It's due to pressure of some kind different situations that bring pressure and sometimes persecution and accusations and difficulty. And as you go through the book, you just find different situations that are ones that you find these pressures coming up. First of all, you have this general pressure. You find it in in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 and 7, a passage that's off-quoted, but it just simply says this, that, okay, you've received salvation. Verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoiced, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And you can put there off to the side, temptations. It's the word trial. Okay, you're going through trials. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Uh, You're going to go through some fire. 
Not literal fire, but though some did, but uh, this is the fire of God's testing to test your quality. That's what that word means in verse 7 when it talks about test. It's testing the quality. You use this to test metals and other things. Uh, And so there are general pressures that are brought in, and it's just generic. You're going to have uh, this heating up of life that's going to go on. Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 13 says you're going to have civic pressure. Okay, sometimes you're going to have problems with the government, and uh, you say, uh, what does it say there? Submit yourselves to every ordinance for, uh, of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be unto the king is supreme, and to governors is unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise for them that do well. And in that passage, it kind of indicates the fact, you know, sometimes the government views you as the enemy, uh, views you as the one that's not right. So there's civic pressure that comes in. You have job pressure. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, it's a section on servants. It says, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. What's that word froward? The word froward is perverse. It's the idea of being twisted. What you would expect to be, you know, straight, this person twists it. And you can have bosses like this. Um, and it talks about situations that sometimes you'll get in because you've done what's right, and all of a sudden uh, the boss is accusing you of doing something wrong. I don't know if you've ever had bosses like that. I've known people that have had bosses like that. They just delight in this. Um, There's job pressure, so you have to realize this, that you're going to have difficulty in job. You're going to have family pressure. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is especially a section about wives who are married to unsaved husbands. What are they supposed to do in that kind of situation? Do you just go, it's over with, we're done, you know, do we call a divorce here, what do we do? And uh, Peter's going, this is how you live your life and understand that the husband's not going to completely understand what's going on here. But you live your life a certain way, even though there may be pressure from your husband in the sense to do differently, that you live your life as a Christian. So you have pressure from family. You have peer pressure. You have several occasions where it's talking about people who were companions, uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, where it's talking about having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, you've got individuals that your peers are bringing the persecution. Chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, uh, for the time past of your life, it suffices to have wrought the will of the excuse me, the will of the Gentiles when he walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess banquetings, revelings, banquetings, excuse me, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. You know, here's your friends and you change and they're like, what's wrong with you? You know, have you gone insane? That sometimes happens when a person gets saved. They just, people are like, you weren't ever like this. What's gone on? Uh, You know, why don't you come back and party with us like you used to? You know, you're no fun anymore. Okay, you have that kind of pressure that goes on. You have pressure from evil individuals. There are just wicked people out there that they are looking to trip up the righteous and to do this, and they take delight in this. 
they're energized by uh, the devil. They're given this energy to, to, to try and make life miserable for Christians. And you have uh, several different sections there uh, dealing with that very fact that that happens. Sometimes you have pressure from authority. Uh, it's not necessarily bad, but First Peter chapter 5 uh, talks about, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the, edder, uh, the elder. Ye all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You realize sometimes you're put in situations where your pride, <laughs> you know, your, your pride is being affected, and that, that's a pressure to react. And he says you need to react with humility. Ultimately, as you go through this, and you get to 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, this pressure ultimately is uh, coming from the Satan himself, the devil. Uh, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Ultimately, all of this, when Satan takes trials uh, and difficulties and tries to hook, you know, lure you along, he is looking to destroy you. And ultimately, all these people that are doing these things in situations are just Satan himself attempting to, well, gobble you up, destroy your testimony, destroy who you are. He would delight in this. And so there's devilish pressure that is applied here. So as you go through, there's all sorts of difficulties. You go through life, there's suffering, as the book is going to mention 16 times uh, over and over again. But Peter does not just dwell on suffering. Okay, you know, oh, woe is me. You know, this is a miserable life. Let me tell you about it. And, you know, I can, you know, tell you about my toenail. It doesn't work right and whatever else. And woe is me. You know, that, no, that's not what he's, he, he ends with. Over and over again, as you go through, there are these sections where you're kind of going, okay, this is a bad thing that has happened, but there's opportunities uh, in the midst of all of this that you have uh, the opportunities to magnify God. Uh, I want you to just go back to chapter 3 and verse 12. Okay, I just want you to, to look at this one. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness, righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Okay, same word used in the Beatitudes. Blessed, happy. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. You go, why? It's because, verse 18, you're being an example of Christ, for Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. And you can go on. But the idea there is, okay, in the midst of this, you ought to have people that are saying, this person is not downtrodden, not cast down, not destroyed. There's a hope to their life. What gives them uh, the right to live like this when they're going through pure misery? 
And so even in the midst of suffering, here these believers, you know, be happy. You've got the opportunity to do what? To magnify Christ. Christ who suffered for individuals, just like you're going through suffering, uh, but you're looking to him who's the author, as Hebrews we just looked a couple weeks ago, the author and finisher of our faith. This one who went through the same sufferings that we did. And so it's not just merely that we're, you know, just destroyed by this, but to live in joy and hope in the midst of difficulty. So if you're to give an overall theme, it could be, the overall theme could be stated this way, okay? Just, I, I put it this way, pilgrim Christian, so you're using the name there, okay? But then this, living in this world while headed to the world to come. Okay. How do I live my life here knowing I've got something in heaven? Fantastic, to look forward to. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. You've got to live, or Peter is saying, you have to live here, but you are headed someplace else, so let's live our life as people continuing through this life, not stopping here in this life. So with all of that, we're going to go through, through the sections very quickly because you've got the general theme that he's just tr- in different suffering situations. He's challenging and giving challenges uh, and the like. But <clears throat> I want to start off with this first uh, idea that the, the Apostle Paul starts off with is that God has a plan for the believer. Okay? They may be thinking, okay, I'm suffering and going through difficulty, and it's some accidental thing. It's random, and it just, you know, it happened, and, and it's here, and maybe God just failed here, and no. Because you read verse uh, 3, well, verse 2, we had this, here these individuals are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto the obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. We can get into the technical details there, but I'll just simply say this. When it comes to your salvation, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in this. It's not that one of them's just, you know, off doing his own thing and, you know, okay, salvation, great, that's the other. No, all of them are involved in you getting where you need to be at. That you'll be saved, that you'll be safe someday. But verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively or a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You've been saved, and there's something reserved in heaven for you. Okay, a place really is what's uh, reserved for you. Uh, and that you're going to be kept by the power of God to get there. So when you think about people who are suffering and going through difficulty, they can come to this conclusion, okay, God has saved me. He's got a place for me. Uh, And it's part of his plan. It's not just, you know, oh, this is an add-on. This is part of his plan that he's going to deliver us safely in a place that he's reserved for us uh, and set up for us that you are secure. And so the believer was not accidentally going through suffering. God had planned for the believer in the past that they should enjoy a glorious future. Christ was the one who suffered to make this salvation possible. He serves as a pattern for believers on how one should suffer. Uh, You go and get to the end uh, of the passage there, and it talks about in verse 11 and 12 uh, these things that Jesus Christ did. 
But then you get to this challenge that, okay, you've been given this life, Christ has lived this life, he's made it possible for you for salvation, so there's a difference in the way you should live. Believers are going to live in a way that reflects the holiness of God. Okay, go to verse number 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea of girding up the loins of your mind, get ready for work, or soldiers, get ready for combat. And here's what you ought to do. Verse 13, as obedient children, not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay, you've been saved, now live like someone who's set apart. I mean, that's what holiness means. It's not just merely I'm set apart from sin, but I'm set apart unto God. That's why one day I'm going to be with him in glory. I'm going somewhere. I'm his. Uh, Now, this requires the believer to be intentional and earnest in their life. This is not just haphazard and accidental and occurring. This is intentional thinking. I'm living a life that's different because my home is not here. I have someone who saved me, and I'm going to live differently. And you live this way because as you get into the, the passage here, verse 18, for as much as you know that you were redeemed that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You you ought to live differently because someone died to rescue you. You ought to be fervent in your service for him and living for him and what he's done to rescue you. So when you start off here, you've got things to look forward to. It's part of God's plan, but you intentionally live life in a reflection that you are set apart into God and that you have been saved, not with money or anything like that, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so he opens up the book that way. And you go, okay, well, this is good. But then you get to the fact that God says there's opportunities for you. Okay, you may not see these things in the midst of suffering and pressures that are going on, but there are opportunities that uh, are given to you for growth, for exemplifying what's going on, showing the change that's happened in your life. You have in verse number 22, it just starts off here, seeing that you have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I mean, you have this opportunity as a believer that you can show love. You know what? The world doesn't love. They're selfish. Believers are selfless. It's a fruit of the Spirit to have love. Uh, See how they love one another was the historian's comment when it came to Christianity in the midst of their suffering. You could tell that they loved one another. The world notes this. Or uh, also the believer has something to ground themselves on. They've got the Word of God that is able to help them grow in grace. So you see this in verse 2, chapter 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. And so you have the Word of God that's given to you. So believers are great opportunities for ministry and growth. The Word plays a major role in spiritual growth. Now, believers have the opportunity to offer sacrifices to God just like the high priest. Now, they're not offering uh, their life like a, in the sense of a sacrifice where blood is going to be shed, though some of them would shed their blood 
than following Christ. But as you look at Christ, Christ is this one who is, as described in verse 6, this chief cornerstone in Zion, elect precious. He that believeth in him shall not be confounded. Uh, he is, in verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. But in contrast, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now the people of God. And so here you have the opportunity as living stones. I mean, the church is not just merely a bunch of blocks that do nothing and stay in place. There's this idea that you have this church that's in living stone, uh, stones that are active, and you have this opportunity to offer up sacrifices. That's why you're called a priesthood. You're able to offer up worship to God and declare Him. And so by the time you're done, you're going, what am I doing? Well, I am lighting up a world that is living in darkness. And I'm living my life this way. So you have opportunities for believers to, to grow, and then as a result of their growth, to display their testimony to a world that is living in darkness. Believers have responsibilities in their relationships, and we dealt with a little bit of this in, and, uh, in the section already just talking about some of the pressures. But understand that believers, uh, bear, the believer bears responsibility to live a life that's free from things that could bring the testimony of Christ into disrepute or question Okay, and so here you have this statement in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest amongst the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They're looking at this, and they're not going, that person made me question Christianity. That person made me question uh, Christ and God. No, when it comes to the day of visitation where people are being judged, they're not going to blame you for your testimony. In fact, they'll glorify God at the testimony that you had. Whether they accept it or not, it seems in the first Peter that he indicates that by their life some of these people are going to get saved. But you don't want your testimony being disrepute. They're to live attractive lives, you might put it this way. This means at, at times uh, means a life of submission to others. Believers should submit to government, believing slaves to their masters, and chapter 3, believing wives to unsaved husbands. Christ lived in submission to his Father and serves as an example for us to follow. It's not that he just merely said, you submit. No, Christ went before this famous passage as you look in verse number 21, for where in, or chapter 2, verse 21, for even here in 2 we recall, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth rightly, righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are ye are healed for you were a sheep going astray but now returned into the shepherd and bishop of your souls uh, the understanding there christ submitted himself unto death so you're not willing to submit to some of the situations you're in but he was willing to submit to even the worst of things and that was death itself in order to save you so christ live a life of submission to his father serves as an example for others to follow believers attitude and suffering Okay, 
We've gone through some of these passages already. But certain spiritual characteristics are part of a Christian's life. You see there in verse number uh, 8 as it starts off, be of one mind, have compassion one another, love as brethren, be pitiful. That doesn't mean, you know, be pitiful in the sense that you, you, know, you, you are, you know, pitiful. Uh, it's having pity. Uh, be pitiful, uh, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, contrarywise blessing. I mean, you have all these statements that you live your life in this way, if you live out these characteristics, uh, if they live out these characteristics, they have no reason for shame when they suffer, but they can rejoice. You know, if you live your life the way you're supposed to, and the world is uh, making a mockery of you, but you've done what you're supposed to be doing, there's no shame there because you followed Christ. Um, what you find is they have an opportunity in their suffering to lift up Christ for the nations to see. Christ radically changes lives. The former friends of believers are able to see that change, and that's what we read in verses four, 3 and 4 of chapter 4 there. Here are these people, you used to run with them, now you don't. There's a radical change. You used to be like this, now you're not. And believers now have this uh, attitude and suffering that's simply going, I have opportunity, the radical change that's happened in my life, I have an example, or the opportunity to be an example that this can happen to other people to help them understand that they can be radically changed by Christ also. That they don't have to live the way that they do right now. They can be radically changed. Now, the believer's future in the present... Okay, you say, what's this talking about? In the light of the coming of Christ, believers need to be active in the present time. The problem with when we read in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there's people going, oh, the Lord's coming back. Oh, we don't have to do anything. You know, stop working, stop being a testimony in the community, you know, just be lazy, whatever. And the, the fact is, is what, that's not the case. In fact, that was in 1 Thessalonians, a uh, case of church discipline uh, to say, listen, this is not how Christians act. But so you read through this passage, need to pray, love, show hospitality, use their gifts, glorify God. Just as Christ suffered before his glory, so believers following Christ will suffer before they get to glory. You have this, this play on suffering and glory as you read through here. You know, you have to suffer before glory. Christ died on the cross before he was exalted in heaven. So it is for us. You go through suffering in this life before you have glory. Don't get it in reverse. There are some people that think, if I'm a Christian, everything's grand. Your best right now. No, it's not what the Scripture says. Uh, there is suffering and difficulty before we get to experience glory. Believers should remain faithful, testimony suffering. They need to be a testimony of people who will suffer a worse fate if they fail to see and accept Christ. That's the thought. You're going someplace else, and it's a glorious place, but if people don't get the message beforehand, they're going to be in a miserable place. So suffer like a Christian and do that. So the believer's relationship in the church, uh, this is how the letter closes out, and it starts off in the first five, uh, four to five verses there dealing with the leadership of the church. Elders which are among you, I exhort whom I also am an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also partake of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock which, uh, of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 
So right from the beginning, the believers who were leaders in the church would lead by example. They were not to lead willing, or they were to lead willingly and not selfishly. They were to be a shepherd to the flock of the believers. Okay, so there's this responsibility that in suffering there is some individuals that are responsible to make sure that people keep going in the right direction. You know, when lions come and those type of things, as you have as the devil comes about as roaring lion, uh, you have to have individuals that sometimes go, it's okay. You know, you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's fine. You're, you're, you'll be okay. You have to have individuals like that. And so uh, Peter challenges leaders like that, reminds them of that. But then in the end, he says this, in response, those that followed should also display a humility of life that is found in the leadership. Satan would love to destroy the unity and fellowship of the church. I mean, it seems to be that if they don't humble themselves and they're lifted up in pride, that's when the devil can easily destroy them. He understands what it is to have pride. That's why he was destroyed. Uh, he can push others to do that. But believers to be aware that Satan at any time could assault believers and attempt to ruin them. And then there's this closing benediction. I mean, he goes through all of this and he just kind of closes with this. And it's sometimes just passed over uh, and forgotten. But verse number uh, 10, it starts this way. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just kind of closes out and goes, you're going to suffer a little while, but in the end, it's going to be fine because you have a great God to him be glory forever. And he just kind of calms them. And then you get to the end in verses 12 through 14, where he just does his closing up of the letters uh, there of where he's been at. So it's a great letter to the, the churches uh, in reading some of this, uh, the churches in China. Love this book. You know why? Because there's a reality to the suffering for them difficulty, pressure on all sides. Uh, they enjoy a book like this because they realize, wait a second, I'm living in this world and this, this country, and though I'm a citizen of this country, I am thankful that I'm not a permanent citizen of this country because I'm headed somewhere else. Uh, and uh, it's because of what God has done through His Son and His eternal plan. So a good book for those under pressure and suffering to be reminded of the goodness, the greatness, and the great gift that God has given to us. Lord, we thank you for your Son that makes heaven a possibility, that we do have a blessed hope, a looking forward uh, to being with Christ and with you forever. And so, Lord, uh, we pray at times that we would come back to this book, be reminded that uh, though we may suffer loss in this life, we must realize that all the stuff that we have here is going to disappear anyhow. It's not ours permanently but we do have a place reserved for us for eternity because of your good grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And so help us to live as a reflection of the hope that we have amongst people who don't have that hope and be a reflection of that. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.